Blog Talk Radio. Quality incubators for almost 40 years. 
They manufacture incubators that hold anywhere from 7 to 380 eggs with high-quality electronic and digital controls, including precise humidity controls and programmable egg turning, all at surprisingly affordable prices. Enter the coupon code WHISPER at checkout and receive 10% off your entire order. Order your new incubator today at Brincy.com. That's B-R-I-N-S-E-A.com. Do you provide a heat source for your backyard chickens in the winter? In most cases, it's not necessary. But if you choose to provide a heat source for your backyard chickens, it's imperative to use a safe and effective heat source, and the only one I recommend is the Sweeter Heater. The Sweeter Heater is a safe, completely sealed, washable, non-breakable, energy-efficient, long-lasting and reliable specific area heater that comes with a three-year warranty. Ditch the dangerous heat lamp this season and invest in the only heater I recommend, the Sweeter Heater. Purchase the Sweeter Heater online at SweeterHeater.com. That's SweeterHeater.com. Since 1921, Stromberg's has been a family-owned and operated business providing quality poultry and poultry supplies to their customers. Today, the Stromberg's family offers over 200 different breeds of poultry, including chickens, waterfowl, and game birds. They also offer poultry supplies for both the beginner and experienced poultry keeper. Stromberg should be on the top of your list when it's time to order your new day-old baby chicks and poultry supplies. Order online today at StrombergsChickens.com. That's StrombergsChickens.com. Hi, I'm country music artist Nathan Osmond, and you're listening to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. And the mighty bird against prejudice continues his fight for law and order. So when you hear that cry in the sky, you'll know it's Super Chicken. Thank you very much for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Kalmbach Foods. Hey, we've got a, a great show for you today. We have uh, talked about this topic many a times. It seems like every year um, there ends up being a salmonella outbreak. In fact, we are just coming off of the largest salmonella outbreak related to live poultry and uh, mail order hatcheries in the history uh, of the United States, according to uh, CDC. So we thought spring is uh, right around the corner. Uh, I know that a lot of the feed stores around the country are already ordering and have already placed orders for their Chick Days events. I know a lot of the backyarders, uh, folks that are just getting into the hobby and lifestyle, and even experienced folks are also getting geared up and uh, looking through all the catalogs and picking out what new uh, birds, new breeds that they might want this year. And they, too, will be soon placing their order. And uh, so uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about salmonella today uh, because it's something that's just kind of over the years uh, we're hearing more and more and more and more about every single year. (laughs) It seems like uh, the outbreaks get a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger, and that could be just because more people are actually doing uh, uh, backyard poultry now and getting into the hobby of backyard poultry. More people are are having backyard poultry, so so the numbers may go up because of uh, because of that reason. <clears throat> but we still uh, we need to do everything we can to try to uh, reduce the number 
during the outbreak and then try to eventually, maybe if we can't eliminate outbreaks altogether, uh, or if there is one to be as small as possible. There's many ways we can do this. Biosecurity is huge, and I'm sure our guest today, uh, poultry veterinarian Dr. Pateskio, will, will touch on that as well, along with the disease of, of salmonella. <clears throat> so biosecurity is huge. Um, and just a couple of years ago, uh, the USDA uh, MPIP, through MPIP, um, uh, launched a new program called Salmonella Monitored, or the Salmonella Monitored Program. And we've talked about this on the show many occasions, and uh, I personally recommend that uh, it's one of the questions you should ask when you call to order your baby chicks to say, hey, do you participate in the new Salmonella Monitored Program uh, through MPIP? And you have to listen very carefully to the answer to that question because I've already um, firsthand experienced some miscommunication. Um, I was visiting a hatchery website. Um, uh, to see what was posted as far as Salmonella Monitor Program or any other NPIP um, information, and a little pop-up window came up and it says, hey, talk live to a representative now. So I said, okay, I'll do that. So I just asked him, point blank, hey, are you curious if you all participate in the Salmonella Monitor Program? And the answer was, uh, yes, we, we are uh, MPIP uh, certified and all of our uh, <coughs> chickens test clear of uh, Salmonella. So then it actually enticed me to give them a call, personal call. And when I called and asked the question, they said, uh, hey, I think we just talked to you on our chat. I said, yes. And um, they said, well, I found out information that that was, that was, I gave you the wrong information. I apologize. We do not participate in the Salmonella Monitor Program. We do MPIP at uh, apparently the, um, where we get checked for Salmonella uh, typhoid florum, which is, affects chickens, but not humans, so they did not participate in that. So I got all that screenshot just, just to show and, and as a learning experience and to teach that you got to be real careful because a lot of people uh, may just say with a small hatchery, and even in this case a larger hatchery, when you just mention salmonella, they might just right off the bat think salmonella typhoid florum, say, oh, yeah, 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 we, we participate in MPIP and we're salmonella typhoid free, <clears throat> and then go on with it, and, and you, the consumer, oh, okay, great. But yet they don't participate in the Salmonella Monitored Program, which actually trains of salmonella that can affect you. Okay, um, so that's why it's so important. They they found that the, the outbreaks it was important enough to develop this program. Hatcheries can volunteer to participate in this program. I encourage you to do so uh, and, and use hatcheries that participate in this program, and not only the hatchery themselves, but their suppliers as well, where they may drop ship from. So uh, and that happens in the industry where you know, hey, we you know we. We don't offer that breed, but this hatchery over here does. So you can, we'll put it on our website. You can order from us. We'll take your money. But then guess what? We'll call Joe over here at this hatchery, and he'll ship you the chicks directly from him. And so now it's even recommended, I think, to the program that all of their suppliers, where they drop ship chicks from, also, <clears throat> if you um, are salmonella monitored and do a drop ship, they, where you drop ship from, have to be salmonella monitored uh, and participate in that program as well. But it is something I think you should be knowledgeable about and ask the hatchery before you order. And, and if they don't, ask them why they don't participate in it. And then maybe even consider uh, going to a hatchery that does participate in that program. <clears throat> Nothing is going to be 100%. There's no guarantee. Um, that's why you, uh, we're not giving you a free pass. Uh, like I said, and printed in the magazine a million times uh, regarding this, because now you have the chicks, you need to um, 
make smart decisions, uh, implement biosecurity, uh, not cuddle, not kiss, not put them in play pens, not put them in pack and plays, not put them in the bed, don't take naps with them, don't put them in the kitchen, don't wash them in the kitchen sink, you know, that type of issue. You need to have some responsibility as well because there's no guarantee. All chickens have the potential to carry salmonella, not all of them. That's a huge myth out there on the on the blogs and forums. Uh, well, every chick carries some. No, no, they don't. <clears throat> Talk about some of that today. But um, they all have the potential to. So, yeah, you need to, just like as a paramedic for many years, uh, I used personal uh, precautions, gloves, masks, you know, things like that, um, because all patients have the potential to be carrying this or that or that or this or that or that disease. So we use, you know, the same thing. We would treat all patients as if they had this disease, and you may want to treat all your chickens as if they may have salmonella. So there's, not, there's nothing out there that's 100%. But uh, when it comes down to doing everything you can to try to prevent this from happening and, and reduce the risks of um, the outbreaks from happening and, and reducing your clients and your customers from getting sick, I think uh, we can choose hatcheries to do everything they can to do that. I think across the board, I think the majority of them do that and want to do that. Nobody wants people to get sick. So um, that's information for you. But today we're kind of focusing on salmonella. And um, there, there, I have a few questions we'll ask as, as we go on today and talk about the disease and how it can affect chicken signs and symptoms, prevention, which a lot of, maybe biosecurity, different things like that. And the fact that it, you may want to put it in the back of your head that when you go out to that feed store and you get these chickens like, like last year, people did, and you're bringing home chicks that may already have and be infected with salmonella. Uh, it can happen. So then uh, we need to talk about that. And a lot of the questions come up. Well, what about testing? How do, how do I get my backyard chickens tested for salmonella? And I've covered that a bunch of times. And right now, and we'll talk to Dr. Pateski about this today, is that uh, testing for salmonella today is um, can be tricky. It's not always um, reliable, I guess I should maybe stretch out there, because they don't shed the salmonella all the time. So the day you shed, or the day you test, they may not be shedding the salmonella. So it may come up negative, but guess what? Two days later, they're shedding the salmonella. They have it in their gut. So that's my understanding. We'll talk about to the doctor about that today. We'll also talk about, well, years ago, on the show, it was a phenomenal show, record number of listeners, uh, when we had Outbreak two years ago, and we had Dr. Pateski on, we had Peter Brown, the chicken doctor on, we had... Um, uh, Dr. Um, uh, Bridget McRae on, a PhD, poultry scientist. Uh, we had another um, doctor on, I'm trying to think his name, I can't remember. And we all just started talking about the outbreak and salmonella and whatnot. And um, one of the big questions is, um, <clears throat> we have these, we have chicks, maybe they, you know, we bomb um, and they have some. Where, where does the salmonella go? That's a big issue because one of the one of the um, doctors on on the show was saying, you know. Over time, this won't be an issue with these baby chicks, even if they have salmonella now. And, and, and so that, that created a lot of questions with our listeners, like, well, what happens? Do they grow out of it? Does it just disappear? Do they poop it all out and it's not an issue? Or, or could it be that when the baby chicks are small and little and cuddly and fluffy and cute, everybody likes to cuddle and kiss and play with and all that. But then when they got to the teenage years and start looking ugly and scraggly and then going through those molts they go through and half are missing half their feathers and they get a little squirrely and kind of afraid of you and then they get bigger and then they go in the backyard and people aren't so... Uh, apt to cuddle and kiss and put them in the playpen and put, take naps with them because they're not cute little cuddly chicks anymore. Maybe that contributes to reducing the salmonella um, that we see um, 
with people getting. So all these questions, and we've got them written down here, so we see them all the time. So I'm going to go ahead and go over here to the phone lines, and uh, we'll bring on our good friend today, um, poultry veterinarian, uh, Dr. Maurice Pateski. Maurice, thank you. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Andy. I think you've done a, a great job. I think we can we can almost go home already. You did a good background. <laughs> such a good background there. <laughs> yeah, and I know it's a great topic. You're in, in the spring issue of Chicken Whisper Magazine. That you're uh, um, doing an article on on salmonella. But all this we've been so many years, um, and I just wanted to kind of uh, prepare folks kind of for that. And I, I still have questions, obviously, that pop up dealing with this year after year after year. So I'm going to kind of turn it over to you. I've got. Um, as it's pertinent or when you cover something, I'll, I'll maybe chime in and ask a question that may be related to the particular topic at that moment that you're talking about, um, and then I'll let you kind of carry that, and we'll probably go and stop about 2.40 for a, uh, our second commercial break for the show. Make sure we do that. But um, I'm going to kind of turn it over to you and have you go through your outline, and, and, um, and then I'll chime in when I have questions related to what you're talking about at any given moment. Great. Well, thanks, Andy. Um, I apologize. I still am having kind of the residual effects of a cough I had last time I was on the show, so slowly getting over that. But uh, if I start coughing a little, my apologies. I know that's not fun to listen to on the radio. Um, so, you, Andy, you did a, a real nice job of, of getting a, a background there, and I, I um, you kind of brought up some interesting issues, and um, you know, you see these outbreaks from a different perspective than I do. So it's always really interesting to get um, you know, kind of the information that you have and, and how you're able to share that. And, and you get to you know, kind of in a lucky position where you are in that you get all these different people, um, experts and um, people, stakeholders from all over the country that are, that are chatting with you. So you get, um, you become uh, such an amazing resource for uh, uh, this kind of information. And it's uh, very much appreciated um, on, on, on my end. Thank you. So what I wanted to do, salmonella is really complicated um, in, in part because um, there's a lot of different words that are used to describe salmonella. And, uh, you know, scientists, um, like, by nature, we like to classify. Um, and sometimes that's helpful, and sometimes that can get a little confusing. The one thing I will point out is that not all salmonella, and this is one of the things I teach you in veterinary school, uh, not all salmonella read the book. So um, when the salmonella is supposed to, um, only make humans sick and not birds sick. Uh, for example, we'll talk a little about paratyphoid salmonella. That's not always the case. And vice versa, when it's a salmonella serotype that is host adapted, meaning it gets the bird sick, but doesn't, isn't typically associated with human disease, um, every once in a while we get the opposite um, kind of scenario happening. Um, but big picture, um, there are about 2,500 different flavors or serotypes of salmonella that are that have been characterized, um, and um, the majority of them are actually what I would call salmonella in name only. Um, they don't make us sick. They don't make poultry sick. Um, they're just um, genetically salmonella, but they don't seem to cause in normal healthy uh, birds and humans don't seem to cause any disease. But there are a handful that that we do focus on, and um, you know, I think we've all heard that data point that one in six Americans. Uh, get food poisoning every single year, and depending on what year it is, salmonella or Campylobacter are the two biggies after uh, noroviruses. Um, so salmonella is is a, is a major issue, and and the 
uh, growth of backyard poultry has made, obviously, a little more front and center uh, with respect to exposure, not just through food, but through our interactions with poultry. Um, and I think you made a really nice distinction there when you said uh, salmonella is not part of the normal microbial ecology of poultry. It's not part of their gut, but it, it certainly can survive in there very well. And the people that kind of argue a little about that back and forth, um, if the salmonella survives in the in the gut of poultry, um, some people would suggest that, well, then it's, just a, it's a normal part of their gut. Um, but I, I would I would um, kind of defer to you, or I would agree with you in the sense that of these paratyphoid strains, the strains that make you and I sick, the Salmonella enteritidises, the Heidelbergs, Hyphiriums, those ones we don't want in poultry, even though they don't make the poultry sick for the most part, um, but um, they aren't normally part of poultry, and they have to get in the poultry somehow, and that's typically through rodents um, and wild birds uh, and insects and things like that. So. Um, it had to get there somehow. So if you have Salmonella enteritidis or Salmonella Heidelberg or Salmonella typhurium or any other Salmonella, it didn't just pop up when, um, you know, out of, out of some kind of spontaneous event. It, it had to get in there somehow. Um, one distinction I wanted to make is um, chicks are very interesting as far as their ability to get infected. Um, because they don't have very many bacteria in their gut when they are born, if they are exposed to salmonella in novo, basically while they're still, while the embryo is still developing, um, it takes less bacteria to cause an infection in a chick than it does in an adult bird. So the biosecurity that happens at the hatchery and as those chicks are hatched is so important because it takes much fewer salmonella to cause an infection um, in a young chick than it does in an adult bird. Um, so there's a subtlety there that it's almost like a moving target that exposure um, is not just it's not just what they're exposed to it's when they are exposed to um, those those paratyphoid or host adapted salmonella. So big picture, just those are two kind of fancy words I just threw out there. So the paratyphoid salmonella are the salmonellas that make you and I sick. So those are the salmonella enteritidis, the salmonella Heidelberg. Salmonella typhurium, a uh, handful of other ones, but those are the ones that typically um, are associated with human disease. Now, those are also typically not associated with disease and poultry. So, Salmonella enteritidis and Heidelberg, for example, which I'm more familiar with than typhurium, those ones um, you will see outbreaks, like we had an outbreak um, in from some, um, we had a half a billion eggs that had to be recalled from two or three farms in the Midwest a few years ago. Um, those, we can't do, we can't just say, well, our birds are sick, so that's their, they must be carrying salmonella enteritidis. Unfortunately, for the most part, they are able to carry the salmonella enteritidis, um, and they don't get, the, the, the birds don't get sick, but the eggs have salmonella enteritidis in them. Um, same thing with salmonella Heidelberg in eggs and meat. Um, where the birds typically, as far as we can tell, don't seem to show too many clinical signs associated with any disease. Now, like I said earlier, the birds don't always read the book, so you can get some disease from Salmonella enteritidis and Heidelberg uh, from these paratyphoid strains in poultry. But it's rare. It doesn't happen too often. And like I said, it, it's probably related a little with age, too. Younger birds are more susceptible um, to getting infected with salmonella because it takes a lower dose for them to get infected, especially when they're chicks and in their embryonic stages. Um, 
So for the most part, these paratyphoid strains are kind of like these silent uh, salmonella in the birds, and then we get exposed to them, and you have this perfect cascade of events that happens in the sense that, A, the bird has to be carrying that paratyphoid salmonella. Uh, B, you have to have an exposure event. Uh, if it's with food, uh, we didn't cook our meat, our, our poultry meat, or our um, eggs thoroughly. If it's with chicks, like as you kind of really, I think, eloquently described, it could be that um, contact exposure from, you know, kissing our birds, um, from uh, using the same shoes and clothing outdoors with our poultry and then coming inside to our kitchen um, and having that, that cross-contamination event happening. So you kind of do need this perfect storm for that paratyphoid salmonella to move from the poultry um, into, um, into our gut and cause um, some kind of food poisoning. Now, the host-adapted salmonella are a little different. They are also salmonella, um, but the, the, the difference with the host-adapted, just to kind of reiterate, is that the host-adapted salmonella um, cause disease in the poultry and not so much in humans. Very, very rarely will you get salmonella pylorum and um, fowl typhoid, which is uh, also called salmonella gallinarium, but goes by more of the common name, fowl typhoid. Very, very rarely will you get those salmonella associated with any kind of foodborne outbreak, maybe 20 or 30 cases in the last 10 years out of probably half a million salmonella cases in that, in that same period, sal uh, paratyphoid salmonella cases. So those ones, you know, like I kind of alluded to before, jokingly, those ones kind of didn't read the book, but they can cause disease, especially in people that are immunocompromised, uh, very young, very old um, individuals whose immune systems might not be um, completely up to par for uh, all the reasons that we, that we kind of know. Um, so it's important to realize that those, those host-adapted ones typically are the ones associated with disease and poultry. And, and there, there are some distinguishing characteristics between the pylorum and the gallinarum. Um, and I'm just going to call it salmonella pylorum and fowl typhoid for now on, just to, to, to make the language a little easier and more consistent with what people use. The pylorum usually affects chicks primarily and is associated with mortality. Um, so you'll have actually reduced hatchability. Um, so you, you won't have as many of your chicks that are hatching. Um, you'll have high mortality in, in young chicks. Um, the pylorum, continuing on with that, it, it is typically um, transmitted either horizontally or vertically. So uh, horizontal transmission is just a fancy name for saying uh, that the bacteria um, is exposed to the chicks um, and can um, go through the, the porous egg, for example, once the egg is, um, <coughs> excuse me, it can go through the porous egg and <coughs> infect the embryo. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, mm -hmm. The vertical transmission is, is interesting in the sense that some salmonellas, including Salmonella pylorum, can be transmitted from the hen to the developing embryo. So before that egg has even um, um, been extruded through the, um, the reproductive tract, uh, it, it, the, 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 the chick is actually being exposed and infected with salmonella. So that's why it's really important to understand that because if you're working with a, or if you're buying chicks from a hatchery, um, and your chicks are contaminated, and remember I said pylorum, typically they will start showing clinical signs of disease two to three weeks after they're hatched. So two to three weeks after you hatch, if you start seeing some signs of salmonella pylorum in your chicks, um, the question then goes to, well, where did they get it and how are they exposed to it? And that's where it gets a little complicated because 
the biology of salmonella um, could, you could make an argument and the hatchery can make an argument that, oh, you brought those birds home. They were healthy when they hatched and now they're sick. You've got salmonella pylorum on your, um, in, in your, in your coop or in your, in your location. And you can also make the counter argument that, well, it takes typically two to three weeks before you start seeing um, mortality. Before that, you start seeing some morbidity issues. The birds start getting more depressed. They won't eat as much. They'll start huddling under brooders and things like that. They'll get anorexic. But you can see where it gets really complicated about how are you going to um, determine where the source of that salmonella actually came from, even though um, those birds were technically basically two locations to that point. Um, just because they do surveillance and just because you do surveillance doesn't mean that those birds um, don't carry salmonella. Um, when you go to a hatchery for an MPIP inspection, not every single bird is, is tested, um, and, and, and that can become challenging because if you have a very large um, hatchery, you can't test thousands and thousands of, of chicks or, um, or hens for salmonella pylorum. Um, but what you can do when they go on these inspections, um, you can look at the um, activities that are and the husbandry practices on those facilities, um, and you can um, make recommendations. And in order for them to be MPIP certified, they have to be able to pass um, that type of inspection where they're actually looking at a lot of the husbandry practices uh, specifically related to biosecurity and disease prevention. So there is no perfect 100% um, system, um, but being an MPIP, uh, even if you are not salmonella monitored, is still better than not being an MPIP. So I agree with you, Andy, in that if you are uh, asking questions and you want to be a really informed uh, consumer, absolutely. The first question should be, are you an MPIP? And the second question right after that, are you in an MPI, uh, are you MPIP monitored? Um, but if they say they're in an MPIP, but they're not an MPIP monitored, being an MPIP is still a lot better than um, not being an MPIP. And there are a lot of smaller hatcheries that are not an MPIP, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of it's economic. Uh, some of it, those, those facilities would not pass MPIP inspections because they just don't um, – that hasn't been an area of focus for them, in part because consumers aren't demanding it. So it, it really kind of rests on you know, a lot of the listeners here to really insist that their hatcheries um, start utilizing the MPIP program. And I really hope that's something that – sounds like something that you've taken a real um, active interest in, and I think there's a real uh, value in that um, for all kinds of reasons, not just salmonella protection, um, Merrick's disease, um, a lot of other um, bacteria and viral um, diseases can be, I think, mitigated significantly by, by really focusing on uh, MPIP and the requirements that it, 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 um, it, it, it entails as far as biosecurity. Um, so when we, 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 I mentioned that there's a lot of these salmonella that are salmonella in name only. We don't really focus on those so much. A lot of those are typically associated with uh, wildlife, uh, rodents, and, and avian species. Where it gets complicated, though, especially with backyard birds and pastured and free-range birds, those birds are so exposed to wildlife that they get exposed to probably a lot of other salmonellas that are kind of these salmonella in name only. The problem with that is the birds don't get sick, but the tests that we use to look for salmonella pylorum and fowl typhoid exposure are these agglutination tests. And that's just a fancy way of saying we're just looking for antibodies 
that the birds might have against those pathogens, against, against Salmonella pylorum, for example. Now, the commercial poultry industry has done a great job of eliminating Salmonella pylorum and foul typhoid in commercial flocks in North America and in most kind of large industrial um, uh, commercial poultry settings. And the reason they've done that um, is um, it, it was devastating for them as far as mortality and morbidity, uh, egg production. Um, so there was an economic incentive uh, to really crack down on foul typhoid and salmonella pylorum. Um, we don't have that same pressure in our backyard kind of scenarios. So in backyard birds and in these pasture and free-range birds, the, we don't really do very much testing, um, which is a problem. And the, problem, the other problem is when we do do tests, the tests have a lot of false positives and false negatives, meaning because our birds are exposed to a lot of avian wildlife, they probably were exposed to a lot of salmonella. Some of those salmonella might be paratyphoid. Some of them might be post-adapted. Some of them might be these kind of salmonella in name only. And what happens, though, because they were exposed to them, they generated antibodies to some of them. And then when you do the test for salmonella pylorum, this agglutination test, the problem is, is that, they, that, that, that the test is very nonspecific. So you get a lot of false positives. The, also, the other problem is the test is also very non um, is not very is 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 not very sensitive, um, in the sense that we also get a lot of false negatives. So, a lot of times they'll do the test and it'll come back negative. Well, it could be negative because the birds were infected two days ago and they haven't had a chance to generate an immune response. It could be negative because there's some research now that has suggested that the antibody levels are, are not always as consistent as you would like them to be. So if you tested them today, for whatever reason, antibody levels were a little lower, so you didn't get this positive agglutination test. So you get a negative test, and you're like, okay, our birds tested negative. Um, so the point being, the test is, is good, but it's not great. And the only real way to have a really... Um, if you did get a positive test, if you got a negative test, you'd say, well, let's test again in two weeks to be really sure. If you got a positive test, you might say, you know what, let's test in two weeks and see what happens with that. And if we start having birds that test positive consistently, at that point, it might make sense, depending on what your goal is with your birds, to send those birds to necropsy, or at least one of those birds to necropsy, so they can try to culture out um, the salmonella pylorum or foul typhoid. Um, because at the end of the day, that's going to be the most accurate test. If you, if you can't find the organism, um, then the serology, that, 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 egg, that agglutination test, is, is, is at some level not giving us a result that makes biological sense. Now, you made a point about um, intermittent shedding, and that is a complete, that's uh, a huge problem with not only with salmonella, but with a lot of um, um, parasites. Um, when you get a negative test, you can't 100% say, well, we got a negative culture for salmonella pylorum, so we're assuming that these birds are, are free from disease. You can't assume that because of this, um, um, this, this intermittent shedding issue. So it gets pretty complicated here, and the only people that really participate in MPIP for the most part are people that want to be able to uh, sell their birds and hatching eggs across state lines. Um, and then there's a real incentive to be an MPIP because if you're not an MPIP, 
and you want to sell birds and hatching eggs across state lines, you have to get a veterinarian to sign off on it every single time to, to say that these birds are healthy. Um, and that can get expensive, and the logistics of that can be challenging. So being an MPIP affords um, um, hatcheries a access to sending birds all over the, the country, um, and there's a real value in that. Now, some of the smaller hatcheries that don't, that don't sell across state lines, it's, it's, it's not as much of an incentive for them, um, but you can see why there's real advantages to be part of that program because, again, there's going to be people that are inspecting your hatchery to make sure that the practices, the husbandry practices and biosecurity practices are appropriate with respect to controlling disease. And if they're in the Salmonella Monitor program, there's going to be additional surveillance with a focus on these paratyphoid salmonellas, which, of course, are really important because those are the ones that are, um, have a food safety kind of component to them. I know that was a lot of information. Is there any questions you have there, Andy, or you want me to keep going? Uh, yeah, I think while we're stopped here, I'll just go ahead and go to our, our second commercial break since we've uh, kind of come up to a stopping point and we come back. Uh, there may be a few questions that I'll ask. I don't see any over in chat or on Facebook yet. So, And then you can continue with your uh, outline. Okay. Thank you. So that's what I'll Folks, we're talking with poultry veterinarian Dr. Maurice Pateski. We're talking about salmonella. And uh, as you can see already in the last maybe 20 minutes, 25 minutes, tons of information have been thrown at us and uh, trying, to, trying to weed that out and kind of figure out, well, how does, that, how does that affect me? How does that affect my flock? And what do I, at the end of the day, what do I really need to do? And uh, prevention and, and uh, biosecurity and then is it worth it to test? So lots of information and there's going to be more to come uh, after this short break. So stay with us. Ware Manufacturing has been building quality hutches since 1983. Ware manufactures modern chicken hutches, barns, pens, and nest boxes designed especially for the backyard flock. Ware offers hutches and pens for every yard size and every chicken keeper's budget. Visit their website at waremfginc.com. That's W-A-R-E-M-F-G-I-N-C.com or call them to find a retailer near you at 1-888-824-7257. Ware Manufacturing. Want to protect your hens from the damage caused by an overly affectionate rooster? Nothing protects hens better than the Hen Saver Hen Apron. Hen Saver Hen Aprons come in several different sizes to fit both bantam and large fowl hens. They also come in several different styles and colors. Give your hens the protection they deserve by purchasing Hen Saver Hen Aprons today. 100% of all proceeds goes to provide care to rescued animals at Crazy K Farm in Hempstead, Texas. Purchase your Hen Saver Hen Aprons at hensaver.com. That's hensaver.com. Hey, it's the Chicken Whisperer. If you're in the market for a new incubator, then look no further than GQF. They have a great selection of tabletop and cabinet-style incubators at prices you can afford. I love my GQF Genesis Model 1588. It has a large picture window and an automatic thermostat, which makes for a better hatch every time. Go pick out your new incubator at GQFRadio.com. That's GQFRadio.com. Cackle Hatchery is a third-generation, family-owned and operated hatchery. They offer over 193 varieties of poultry shipped directly from their facility in Missouri. 
It's their mission to enhance your life by providing you with quality poultry for showing, meat, enjoyment, eggs, and pets. They specialize in hatching purebred poultry and shipping day-old chicks right to your local post office since 1936. 4-H and FFA Youth Poultry Clubs get a 10% discount. Check out their website, CackleHatchery.com, for posted weekly specials and discounts. That's CackleHatchery.com. Come back. Come back. Come back. Come back. From our family to yours, feed your chickens the way nature intended. Pure, wholesome goodness. Kalmbach Feeds. Visit our website at kalmbachfeeds.com. That's K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H feeds.com. Or order today on Amazon.com. Kalmbach Feeds is a proud sponsor of the Chicken Whisperer. Alrighty, thank you very much for staying with us today. Great topic. Hope you're taking lots of notes like uh, I am. Head back over here to the phone lines and we'll bring back um, poultry veterinarian Dr. Maurice uh, Pateski. Um, I guess uh, putting all this together, and like I said, I don't want to, uh, that old saying, beat a dead horse, because we've covered this so much in the past, but we always have new listeners or listeners that may have missed an episode before and whatnot. I know that um, it was very controversial uh, a couple of years ago when we had three out of the four poultry experts, um, you included, and, and um, some with incredible credentials like yourself, and um, talking about that with all the information we had known, we had told, well, if, if you just found out you had received these baby chicks from, and they were named in this outbreak a couple of years ago, what's what do you all, three out of four that were on the show, um, recommend to call those, and that just started an uprising with everybody, so I don't want to, you know, beat that dead horse again, but because everybody explained the reasons why they would have, have done that, um, but it, it, a lot of times, and things I've seen year after year, last few years, is, um, and w- that rang from that interview, was that I had mentioned it earlier in kind of my presentation for the, the show today, is when uh, that one person had said something like, this is not going to be an issue once the chicks get older or, you know, it would let them, you know, carry on, you know, don't, I don't, you know, shouldn't call and we do this, that type of thing. And he had his own opinion on that. But I mean, my question, and, I, and that was as, as a host, I failed to uh, think about it that time and, a, and ask that, that guest, but um, well, why? My question was, why would he even recommend it? Because I've heard it a couple other times. Well, it's, it's, it's the, it's a bigger issue when you have a baby chick than once they they become adults. And, but it was left at that. It wasn't okay. Well, do they grow out of it? Does it just disappear? Do they all poop it out? I mean, I, I don't. I, you know, once is is acceptable. Down the question is, once salmonella, always salmonella. And I don't want to get specifically into treatment. Like you know, well, you can give antibiotics, and it may or may not. You know, the 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 answer to that is, is you know, um, but is or, or is my theory kind of makes sense earlier that maybe we may see these outbreaks more with the baby chicks because um, people are, are, again, because they're cute, they're cuddling more, they're hugging more, they're kissing more, they're putting them in, you know, the kids are playing with them more because they're cute and cuddly, and then they get in that awkward stage and they're ugly, and then they go adults and they're outside and they're not in our homes anymore, like when we had them in our brooder and that type, could that contribute to that? Or is there uh, uh, any science that says, well, they'll, 
they'll they shed more when there's their chicks versus when they're older or the, the scenario of the brooder and cleaning it out, we're more susceptible to touching the feces that may be contaminated and then getting into their amount, or is there any kind of science that says, hey, when they get older, um, they have less, or it goes away, or it's not as potent, or they're not shedding as much, If, if, if I guess if you kind of understand where I'm coming from, because that's always, since, you know, two years ago, left me just kind of hanging, wondering about, man, I should have asked that, um, and so I'm going to kind of ask you now, because we hear, we hear, we may... And it goes even today to say, you know, we, we have these outbreaks. Every year we have the outbreaks. It's related to the baby chicks, but every year it doesn't seem like we have an outbreak associated with the adult birds that, that are now adults or, you know, year after, two years later after everybody's gotten their chicks, there being an outbreak. Is there any sense to that or, or reasons or some where that I had yeah. mentioned that but there's more? That's a really a very good question, Andy. And and the short answer, I don't know the answer to everything. I think your your um your speculation makes sense anecdotally about the observation that you know chicks are cute. We pay attention to them when we're cute, and we we try to kiss them and do all these things that we shouldn't do with the chicks when they're young and cute. Um, so there is you know I, I would imagine if you did surveys, um, that contact would be much more common when the birds are young than when the birds are old. And that uh, contact is essential in order to, um, you know, get the bacteria into your, into your oral cavity and, and, and cause an infection. So I think you're on to something there. I think there's some really interesting probably social science there and some surveys that can be done and things like that to really kind of confirm that and connect the dots a little better. Is it accurate um, to say that, is it accurate to say that that chick, once they have salmonella, they'll if it's not treated, you know, and and this is maybe a case where you know they may have salmonella, and like I said, we never know it, we never get sick from it, da da da. But but um, in these outbreaks, that chick that may be identified as having salmonella will always have that salmonella. In, yeah, so that's in the next in- question that you, you're getting to, which I think is really interesting too. Um, so can, can, you know, just like you and I, um, can, um, and one of us will get sick and the other one will not be sick. We still might both be carriers. Um, just because one of us shows clinical signs, um, we still, um, were exposed to the same pathogen. Um, it grew inside us and, and we could potentially be carriers. Same thing with poultry. Um, so the, the problem with treating for salmonella, you can treat, uh, for the disease salmonella with antibiotics. Um, the problem with that. Um, is that if you do treat, uh, there are no studies, as far as I can tell, that show that you can actually completely eliminate the infection. Um, so um, what happens in a lot of times is they're on antibiotics for a good chunk of time, typically around two weeks if we're dealing with um, treating uh, pylorum and or gallinarum, uh, foul typhoid. So they'd be on antibiotics in their feed for you know, approximately two weeks, um, eggs are not consumed during that time, and during the subsequent withdrawal period, they're not consumed. However, there's there's no combination of drugs that has been found effective at completely eliminating the infection. So what you mm-hmm. could have um, is you could have a scenario where you have birds that are subclinically infected. Um, now, advantages and disadvantages. Advantage of that is that your birds are feeling better and you didn't have to cull them. So that's good. You're excited about that. Sometimes they do that um, aside from, you know, just, just nature taking the birds, not salmonella, won't kill 100% of your flock. It's not really an avian influenza or anything like that. So you do have some birds that survive. Those birds are still uh, probably low-level carriers, though. And here's where it gets complicated. 
if you are going to bring in other birds into your flock, those birds are most likely going to get exposed to that salmonella, and you're going to start kind of perpetuating that cycle of disease again. This is why mixed-age flocks are really challenging to deal with with respect to disease control because mm -hmm. you could make an argument, okay, it's going to be an all-in, all-out flock, meaning that the, the birds that, 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 that came in together were all the same age, and eventually when those birds are no longer productive or there's welfare issues, they're just old, you depopulate that flock, and then you start over again. Well, I don't know one backyard flock that works that way. Usually a couple birds right. died of this disease, a couple birds died of that disease, and you bring in some new birds, and then those new birds are going to be exposed to pretty much all the diseases that the birds from the that from the that, that were that were previous that that, that survived um, some of the diseases that some of your birds were were exposed to, and and those ones died. So you're kind of perpetuating these diseases. So the the problem with not culling is that if you're going to have a completely closed flock, and you're going to say, well, I'll just keep these. Instead of 10 birds, I'm going to keep these five birds until they die, and then I'll start over again. I'll clean and disinfect everything before I start over again. You can make an argument, yep, let's not cull the birds. I'll just let them live out their natural life. But 99.9% .9 of backyard flocks don't do that. Most backyard flocks, for better or for worse, um, will just have a, no, a couple new birds trickle in there, and then those new birds are going to get exposed, and you're going to start getting that new cycle again of exposure and disease and morbidity and mortality. Is that okay? I want to Yeah, absolutely. And I've got a couple more, I guess, kind of comments to make too for our listeners. Um, that because um, <clears throat> in um, there's an outbreak. It seems like every year after Easter, after the big chick time, and and people, it's, it's often we talk about it. They're like, well, you know, um, there's a little confusion when we talk about salmonella. And you explained it really good early on about you know there's the salmonella like that we said we get from the salad bar from you know touch the washing the chicken and then touch you know that food preparation and from food itself and the the um uh, the salmonella delivery i guess from the baby chicks from the you know every spring after easter it has to deal with and like you mentioned from the feces the the salmonella and the feces we clean the coop clean the brooder uh the bedding you know we're doing pasty butts so we're wiping the we're wiping the poo from pasty but now, and then we may not think to wash our hands and then we like you had mentioned um you know the hand up to the mouth and then we in, ingest that and we get you know down in our in our gut and so so for the people understand because a lot of times i'll see it they'll post something after we talk about salmonella and they'll be talking about was this in the egg or on the egg or is it you know when i'm preparing food or can i get this from a restaurant or and so that we uh, i want to emphasize folks that like you said there some that are of course in the egg so when you gather that egg you don't cook it right there's that chance but the majority um if not all the outbreak um, related to the baby chicks is from that touching the poop touching the waste and then going and, and you know putting your hands in your mouth you know that type of infection and that leads me to my next comment was that I think it was last year or the year before we interviewed a family uh, and their son was infected two years ago with that outbreak. He was 14 years old. You can go back and find and listen to the episode. It, it was an amazing episode hearing their story uh, about their uh, experience in this the being infected salmonella from their backyard flock. And it deemed, I'm just sharing this because we obviously this shows that most folks they get the salmonella, it's kind of hand-to-mouth ingested that don't wash your hands type of thing. In his case, the doctors narrowed it down to and why his case was unique and, and, and so serious so fast 
uh, and hard to diagnose initially until he was in ICU, and they were just throwing all kinds of tests at him to try to find out what was going on, was that salmonella entered through a, a cut on his body. So that, that adds right. even another area of biosecurity that, okay, are you changing out the waterers and feeders and cleaning out the coop with flip-flops on uh, where you may have a hangnail cut on your feet? Or are you doing that without, you have a lot of cuts on your hands or might be working on the car that week? It, it may just, just, just for our folks, not to be paranoid, that's not our goal, is to, to, to just with a little bit more information to protect you and your family. You've got cuts on those hands. You may want to wear gloves when you're dealing with the chickens in the backyard, cleaning out their coop, changing out the waterers. You got cuts on your feet for whatever reason. Um, you got a new puppy and he likes gnawing, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, to, to maybe not clean out waters and coops while you're wearing flip flops, uh, and and have some long pants and socks and, and shoes that cover the foot. So I wanted to share that as well because a lot of times people mistake they hear salmonella and like you said they think about the raw chicken, the the, the salad bar, things like that. And they may not think about it actually being in the even with adult chickens being in the poop. And then you think about where is chicken poop in your backyard, chicken owners? Uh, more the better question is where is it not? <laughs> where where is there not poop versus where is poop? And and then it, it, we know that the salmonella can attach to dust and then can move uh, all or even on you, on your shoes, on your clothes as well, and move somewhere else. Uh, so it can be transmitted. So I just wanted to share those two things because one triggered that when you talked about uh, ingesting it, and I wanted to mention that for our listeners, that the, the cut on the body somewhere. So to be, be aware of that, uh, listeners, as well, if you have those cuts, maybe for until they're healed, wear those gloves or maybe not wear flip-flops. And then, the you know, it can be in the egg, sure, but a lot of these cases, I think, in the backyard, and especially the, the, the um, baby chicks, it's in the poop, it's in, in the waste and uh, fecal matter that then we touch and clean up and then put our hands in our mouths or things like that. So I wanted to um, address that. I'm going to let you kind of carry on with your uh, and continue with your outline regarding salmonella, but I wanted to mention that since I had a second. No, that's a, that's a very good point, Andy. The only other thing I would add on to that is uh, mucous membrane, so the you know, your eyes um, and the mucous membranes in your mouth. Um, those are also um, uh, good routes of infection that you should also consider. So as you said, we don't want to scare anyone over, you know, over um, just people having the knowledge to know that um, it's primarily a fecal oral, primarily just a species that, that, that you're con- um, ingesting one way or the other, but uh, aerosols and uh, any kind of cuts and things like that, as long as it can get in your body, um, it can it can certainly uh, find that nice warm um, uh, temperature and, and grow um, in all kinds of different uh, compartments in your body. Um, so yeah, those are those are very good points to make. Um, the only other things I really wanted to kind of mention is, you know, even if you're not in MPIP, if you're just a, a good old kind of backyard poultry producer, um, you can do a lot of what MPIP does. Um, and, and that should give you a little more confidence in um, making sure your birds are not just free of salmonella. The, the, the real good thing, we've talked about this before, the great thing about biosecurity um, and MPIP in general is that um, by doing these practices, you get multiple diseases that you're protecting yourself against. Obviously, nothing is foolproof or perfect, um, but you're, you're protecting your birds and your family and um, everything else in between uh, from a whole host of diseases, some that affect us, some that just affect the birds. Um, but but it, you're really getting the most bang for your buck by really focusing on there. And the one thing I wanted to point out is that the, the disease 
going back to salmonella, um, the, the transmission routes, are, there's multiple ways that, that salmonella can get into your birds. Um, and, and I wanted to, to briefly touch on that just for a few minutes. So you can have direct transmission, just uh, contact between um, flocks that are carriers um, and uh, flocks that are and or birds that are susceptible. Um, so that direct transmission can happen between, again, this mixed-age flock scenario that we just talked about. It can also happen from wildlife, uh, rats, mice, rabbits, uh, cats, dogs, uh, free-flying birds, um, rodents, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the thing I'd point out, though, is interestingly, uh, for most of the wildlife studies, they don't seem to be uh, carriers of the um, of, of the um, host adapted, these host specific salmonella like pylorum and foul typhoid. Um, all the species of wildlife and domestic animals I just mentioned don't don't. There isn't a lot of evidence that they are the primary carriers of of those salmonella. So for the most part, they are um, kind of isolated in certain pockets of poultry. Um, so if we can really make sure that we're working with good hatcheries, um, that's one really good way of really ensuring that our birds are going to be uh, free of the host-adapted salmonella. When we're talking about the paratyphoid salmonella, absolutely, you can have some wildlife that can be carriers for that. So again, you know, reason number one million to really focus on uh, one million and one to really focus on kind of the biosecurity issue. Um, but just be aware that, that the wildlife issue is kind of an interesting one and that there isn't a lot of evidence that um, birds are really the carriers of uh, foul typhoid and salmonella pylorum, which I think is kind of interesting. The other thing I want to point out is, and we've kind of alluded to this, that we talked about direct transmission. Uh, there's also indirect transmission, and that's um, where we have contaminated coops or equipment um, um, any type of uh, shoes, anything that's um, potentially infected and is kind of fomite or a, um, a inorganic uh, element that, that is carrying um, the, the bacteria. Um, so shoes is the kind of classic one that we always talk about. So you're, you're on your um, you're in, in your backyard, in your backyard coop, and then you go to a feed store. You've got no salmonella in your coop. You go to the feed store. Someone had salmonella in their coop. They were also wearing their boots. You stepped in the, the poop that they were exposed to, and then you bring that salmonella right back into your coop because you kept the same shoes on um, mm -hmm. in between your coop and your feed store, for example. And you can think of a gazillion other scenarios where that can happen. And that's a really, you know, humans are, are, are probably the biggest source of contamination and transmission of disease just because of our kind of uh, our, our nature and how much we're moving around all the time. Um, than a lot of the other kind of wildlife scenarios and other things that we kind of consider. So a lot of this falls upon ourselves, and that's a good thing because we can certainly change our behavior relatively easily. And, um, you know, these small changes can really have a, a big effect. I know it's, it's almost like um, it's almost a personality trait. Are, are you, you know, kind of fastidious about other things? And, and it usually carries over to, to your poultry. And if you're not, it's something you certainly want to consider trying to, trying to improve. Um, it's interesting. I, I work with some colleagues who do some work with um, internationally, um, and they really have focused. They've learned through surveys that they really focus their biosecurity talks on children, uh, not so much on the adults, because the adults are kind of set in their ways. But if they learn through surveys that if they really focus on the kids, the kids will kind of force or shame the parents into kind of following uh, what the kids are learning at the school, as opposed to uh, you know kind of speaking to the to the parents who sometimes are like yeah 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 I know I should do that but I'm in a hurry. 
Um, so there, there's probably something to be learned there for all of us if we can um, maybe focus our outreach efforts toward, toward children. There might be some benefits there too. Um, the other thing I want to mention is biological vectors. So um, we did talk about rodents and wildlife, um, which can carry uh, a range of diseases. Um, there's also litter beetles, um, other insects that can be mechanical um, uh, sources of infection. So they can literally, uh, flies, for example, um, can carry salmonella because they are being exposed to and are um, trying to find all kinds of fecal material from all kinds of wild animals. And then they find feed in a coop that was, you know, left out or whatever it be, and then um, they mechanically are transmitting the bacteria from one location to the other. So that's something to be aware of. Feed is also something we need to be really cautious with. Um, obviously, our chickens like feed, but also wildlife like feed. And wildlife um, are not always smart enough, and animals are not always smart enough to, to eat and poop in different places. So, again, you can have uh, transmission of disease into contaminated feed. Um, it's really important with feed also to, to consider, you know, the source of your feed. So pelletized feed um, and crumbled feed are, are good sources. The only thing I don't like about crumble versus pelletized feed is crumble has a tendency to kind of spill over uh, feeders, and that is a little more difficult to clean up every night. Um, and if you don't clean that up every night, you're going to start having rodents and other insects that are going to be interested in that feed. Um, there is no reason to feed um, um, you should be feeding pelletized feed to, to adult um, birds. Uh, there is no reason to feed them crumble, um, and there's no advantage conferred in that. I know some people do talk about, you know, they've got um, bantams and other things like that, and my experience with bantams is limited, but um, I have never seen a bantam that couldn't eat a, a pelleted feed. Um, but I know some people think about um, crumble in, the, in that scenario. Um, the other thing I kind of wanted to, to, to briefly mention is this vertical transmission. So you might be doing everything exactly right, um, but because salmonella, especially um, pylorum and pteridotus um, and uh, foul typhoid can be transmitted vertically from the mother to the developing embryo um, before the bird even hatches because it can be transmitted that way. Just because you're doing everything right doesn't mean that the outcome is going to be what you want it to be. So we talked about this and, and, and a little before, but it's really important to work with hatcheries that are um, kind of up to par as far as their biosecurity or else everything that you're doing is kind of for naught um, before you even get the birds. You might have everything. You might have the best backyard biosecurity coop um, that, you've, that you've ever seen. And if you're not working with a reputable hatchery that um, – isn't practicing, doesn't mean they have to be part of MPI, but isn't at the minimum practicing good biosecurity practices. Um, and, and then in a perfect world would be part of salmonella monitor programs and part of MPIP, obviously. If they're not doing that, then you're, you're kind of, all the work you're, you're, you've done could be basically for not because um, those, those uh, hens were uh, infected. So that's a really important kind of uh, thing that we need to focus on. Not just with salmonella, there's, there's some mycoplasma diseases, the same kind of scenario. In that situation, um, you know, if you are a hatchery or kind of a, a smaller hatchery out there, it's really important to test your birds because the last thing you want to do is uh, send out contaminated chicks to all your clients. Um, so having some type of um, monitored surveillance is, is really important. That's the nice part about MPIP. They come out to your farm, um, obviously for a fee, but they come out to your farm and do the testing. Um, and the more and more people that, that kind of realize that MPIP, if there's some kind of value added to MPIP, I think the more um, important and the more 
uh, the more importance is going to be placed on people asking um, their hatcheries if they're part of MPIP. So there's a lot of value in that from, from my perspective. Um, and like I said, the, the, the surveillance, as far as the serological testing, gets messy. Um, no test is perfect. Even, even you know, the best of tests are not 100% sensitive and specific. Um, but there's some problems with these tests. Um, so when you do get positives and negatives, um, just think about them um, within the context of your flock's health. So if you are having a lot of mortality at day five of age in some chicks that you just got, and all the clinical signs are kind of pointing to pylorum, and the serological tests in the rest of your flock come back negative, I would kind of question that and potentially do some more tests a week or two out from that, um, or um, probably even better than that, submit some birds to a diagnostic lab. Um, and vice versa. Um, I think you just need to just need to think about the test. Just because the test is negative or positive, any test, but especially for these tests, you just need to kind of think about it in the context of what the flock's health is. Um, if it's negative and there's nothing going on in the flock, I, I would feel very confident in that. Um, but sometimes I think we have a tendency to say, well, the test is negative, so it must be something else. And it's, unfortunately, um, that's not the way medicine typically works. Um, any other um, I've got, questions? Go ahead. No, go ahead. One last question, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, is it well? First, two, one comment, and then one question. Mm -hmm. I, I was looking over uh, the uh, last year's outbreak, 2016, and there were seven different um, strains of Salmonella that was identified. Uh, of course, there was the Enteritidis. There was uh, I'll pronounce these horribly, but uh, like a uh, monster. There was Hadar. There was Indiana. Mm -hmm. There was Danka or whatever M D A N D A K A, but Aka, uh Infantis or Infantis, <laughs> and then Braden Cook, So there were like eight, seven or eight different types of um, Salmonella that was found during the outbreak related to the baby chicks and, and the middle-order hatcheries, which um, <laughs> that which is pretty. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, anyway, um, new. A lot of times there'll just be one or two, and we had like seven or eight different types of Salmonella, which was uh, very interesting. That was I don't want to say alarming, but interesting to see for according to the CDC for last year. Um, but my question for you that is this. Because um, I, I think back to questions that people ask on, on the uh, Facebook page about when I mentioned salmonella and things like that. Is it possible, and, and it may be uh, type uh, sensitive, if you will, but is it possible to, say, have salmonella being in the egg um, and but not in the poop or vice versa. So, because people will say, well, I eat my eggs runny all the time and I've never had salmonella. But, but so there may not be, based on the type or variety of salmonella, there, there may not be salmonella in the egg, but it may be in the poop and the feces and, and then vice versa, you've got, you know, the big egg operation. And there's, you know, like we had a few years ago, you mentioned all the egg recall where um, that there may be salmonella in the eggs that those chicks are producing, but not necessarily in the feces or, or the poop. Or does one go with the other all the time? Yep. No, great question. So not all salmonella are transmitted vertically. So uh, salmonella Heidelberg compared to salmonella enteritidis. So salmonella enteritidis is, is known um, to be relatively commonly transmitted vertically versus salmonella heidelberg, which is not, I think most people would say, is not transmitted as commonly vertically. 
Um, mm-hmm. Biology, so I never say never. So it's more of a shades of gray type thing. Um, but to kind of answer your question, not all salmonella behave the same. There's more similarities than differences. Um, but they, some of them are a little different than each other. But to answer your kind of maybe the, the question, the next question beyond that, so you're saying, okay, salmonella entry this can be transmitted vertically, but could you have it where the bird's a carrier of salmonella? Um, it's in the feces, but it's not in the egg. Absolutely. Um, I think a okay. lot of it is, now this is where it gets complicated, a lot of it has to do with how healthy the bird is, um, how much of an infection they actually have, um, there's some subtleties there that, in all honesty, I don't think we really know um, a lot of the details around. Um, but um, if our birds are, you know, the dogma is if we do these drag swabs, we find salmonella and, and turritus in the environment, um, then the next thing they do is they look for it in the eggs, it, assuming that the producer wants to keep that flock around. And what you can do is if you do three egg tests, they, they test about 1,000 eggs, um, I think two or three weeks apart from each other. Um, so over a six-week period or so, they tested 3,000 eggs from a flock. If those are all negative, you can start selling those eggs again. So even though those drag swabs came back positive for SE, because we're not seeing anything in the eggs, we're kind of assuming that the, the eggs and the product is safe. Um, but but the scenario is out where it's dominant in the environment, but we're not finding an eggs. Now, I can wave my arms around and say there's a couple of reasons why we might not be finding in the eggs. The, the test they're doing is a kind of a pooled test. So we take 1,000 eggs. So let's say only one hen hypothetically has salmonella enteritidis, but we just diluted that enteritidis by 1,000. So we're not really going to have a very sensitive way of detecting that, that one contaminated egg in 1,000. But it would be cost ineffective to actually do 1,000 separate tests. Um, of each of each thing together. So you, you do the best you can. You have to kind of consider economics in there um, and practicality in there also. So um, it, these are these are good questions. We don't we don't know the answers to a lot of these. To, to, to briefly answer, I think that I think that last example you shared kind of explains why, at the end of the day, based on even asking these hatcheries a million questions before you order. Um, and, and even, like I said, with food safety, okay, I just got these eggs, bought whatever. Uh, I think at the end of the day, that's why we see these, you know, cook your eggs thoroughly, cook that meat to 165, you know, use biosecurity after you're done cleaning the brooder and wash hands. Don't put them in, you know, all this stuff, because we, we can test till we're blue in the face. We understand that all the, you know, all the testing we can do is great, and it's great to say I'm going to order from this hatchery, and they're doing everything they know to do to, to prevent this from happening. But there's always that chance. So at the end of the day, I still need to do biosecurity. I still need to wash my hands, cook my meat, cook my eggs, da 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 In case, you know, the thousand eggs they, they tested, uh, it still missed it, and I still now I have an egg that has it or have you. So that's a great example at the end of the day why we still don't get a free we still don't get a free pass as the end user, if you will, the receiver of these baby chicks or whatever, uh, because we still have a responsibility we need to do to continue that testing or the prevention and biosecurity. Yep. I think, again, that's where you get the most bang for your buck. We can't really test our way out of a uh, – it, it doesn't make economic sense or practical sense to, to, to try to test our way out of, a, of an outbreak. Um, in the sense that you're going to get more bang for your buck by doing limited testing to kind of see if there's a problem, but focusing your energy and your resources on prevention is really where, uh, from a food safety. Exactly. Well, this is awesome. Awesome information. 
Awesome. Um, you broke up there for a minute, but thank you so much for coming on and clear up. Uh, again, that's a, a deep subject, but um, we, we covered a lot of it, I think. We got a lot of the questions that I see a lot uh, answered, and um, you explained a lot that, again, for a lot of us still may be over our head, but we you know grasp it as much as we can. And uh, we got enough, I think, information to do what we can do to try to protect ourselves and our family and our flock from from this uh, disease. So, uh, Dr. Maurice Petesky, thank you very much for coming on today. We look forward to your article in the Spring Magazine uh, when that comes out here in the next few weeks. And uh, you can look for that and subscribe to that, folks, at uh, chickenwhisperermagazine.com. And, Doc, thanks for coming on today. We look forward to seeing you next month for another great topic. Great. Thanks for having me, Andy. I appreciate it. Necessarily to use the old cliche to recap, but again, um, we think it's important to um, when you go to order chicks this spring. You know, hey, you know, ask those important questions. Um, you know, do you participate in MPIP? Uh, great. And then, you know, at what level do you participate in the Salmonella Monitored Program, which will test, you know, I believe it's five uh, uh, swabs a month. Um, one test a month, five swabs, <laughs> and um, you know, for for salmonella strains that could affect me uh, and my family, not not just the birds. Um, use biosecurity around the house. We heard Dr. Petesky say about the spread of salmonella uh, through wild birds and rodents and insects. So, no, you cannot watch your chickens 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm a realist. I'm down to earth. Anybody who's sat through any of my workshops around the country, 32 states going on strong, knows when I present I'm very realistic about this. can't watch them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'll give you an example. Your chickens may eat the occasional mouse out in the backyard, the occasional mouse, not, oh, look, I just lifted up a rock and uncovered a mouse nest with about 15 baby mice. Here, chicky, 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 come eat all these baby mice because it's free protein for you. Okay, we need to be smart about it, but we have to be reasonable. Bird baths, bird, we've had articles in the magazine from poultry scientist Dr. McRae about the dangers of bird baths, bird feeders in our backyard, the transmission of disease, the types of diseases. So it would behoove you to remove those bird baths and bird feeders from where your backyard flock has access to. Get them out of the backyard, put them in the side yard, put them in the front yard where you can still enjoy them, but they're not in the backyard. And then you're saying, I can't prevent all these wild birds from landing in my backyard. Nope, you can't. And that's where I become a realist and be very realistic. You cannot stop a wild bird from landing in your backyard and then flying off. I get that. But that is one landmine, per se, in your backyard. Why do you want three or four or five or six or seven different landmines in your backyard that could affect or infect your backyard poultry? So you have no bird bath. You just eliminated a landmine. You have no bird feeders. You just eliminated another landmine. So you, now you've got the one landmine in your backyard, that wild bird landing in your backyard or landing over into the coop to try to get some free uh, free food, but you don't have three landmines. You just got one. So, so yeah, let's be realistic. I understand you can't keep wild birds from flying in your backyard, maybe in your run by having poultry netting and fencing up in your run. Uh, if you have a large run, you keep your birds in. But I get that in, in your backyard. But that's one landmine, not three or four or five, by having bird baths and, and then and the insect issue, uh, keeping what you keeping what you can do to keep uh, roaches out of your coop and your run. Certain types of roaches have known to spread and, and proven to spread eyeworm for your chickens. They can carry uh, on their little insect feet uh, the salmonella that can infect your birds. Biosecurity, you've heard me preach that a million times. But these are just some examples I wanted to follow up with. And I can start with ordering the chicks and asking the right questions to receiving them and uh, implementing good biosecurity uh, 
from the brooder all the way out to the coop to protect your family. That's what we're all about, education for you. The more information you have, the better off um, you, the, then you can you can do with it what you want. You can ignore it and say, I've been keeping chickens 30 years and I've never had salmonella. Okay. Um, hey, you know what? I've known people that have said, I've been smoking for 10 years and I don't have cancer. But the first day of the 11th year, they're diagnosed. And then they succumb to the disease in their 11th year. But for 10 years, they said, I've been smoking for 10 years and I never had a problem. And then they're no longer with us after the 11th year. Uh, same thing. Just because you say, well, I've had chickens for 30 years and I hug them and I kiss them and I've never had salmonella. Tomorrow's another day. Next year's another year. And just like with that smoker or any other, but I use that as an example because we want to keep our listeners safe. We want them to raise some good, healthy birds. And uh, sometimes you got to put it that way for, oh, now I see the correlation. Oh, I guess that does make sense, uh, Andy. So, um, hey, thanks for tuning in today. We'll be back next week. Um, let's see. I think we've got next week we've got poultry scientist, Dr. Bridget McRae, Ph.D. She'll be coming back on the show next week. And then uh, the last uh, Thursday of the month, it's a short month, yeah, the 23rd, uh, we'll have, uh, I believe, Peter Brown, also known as the Chicken Doctor, will be on that Thursday. So, we, uh, we again, we do appreciate you tuning in today. And um, we hope you'll tune in next week right here on Blog Talk Radio with Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer brought to you by Combach Feeds. God bless everybody. Aww.